Well, good morning. Glad to see you. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors. I'm one of those people Aaron just prayed for that has a cough that won't go away. It's been like six or seven weeks. Had like two-week reprieve, and then it hit me again yesterday. So, uh, Lord willing, I can get through uh, the sermon without hacking into the microphone. Uh, but I'm glad you're here. I really am. I don't know how you come into this place, but we're picking up uh, this morning uh, in a 10-week series that we've been in in the Old Testament book of Judges, which I know Judges may seem like uh, to many of you a strange place to begin 2019 as a church. It is a book filled with odd stories, uh, at times very difficult passages to interpret. Uh, But I don't know of of a better book in the whole Bible to understand spiritual renewal and particularly what it means for us to live as followers of Jesus in our present current culture. You know, one of the things that excites me about preaching out of the Old Testament is that hopefully as we do, we're helping you understand how to read and interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament and then apply it to present day life. Uh, I know I've heard from many of you that much of the Old Testament seems so foreign, that the Old Testament world feels so different than our current world, which makes reading and interpreting and applying it difficult. Our passage this morning is a strange passage. Uh, I have been challenged and Uh, As I've prepared and studied and prayed over this, I've been uh, thankful for my friend Rankin, who was very helpful as we looked at Judges chapter 4. But we're going to look at Judges 4, this story, this morning together. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, It's a long chapter, so get ready to try to stay attention, keep keep attention throughout it. Got a lot of names, old ancient Near East names, so... Uh, Don't let that distract you either. But I'm going to read the whole chapter of Judges 4, as is our custom. I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's Word in Judges chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Cushan with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you not, will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Zenanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Cushan. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots. 
and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on the foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Isaiah tells us, the grass withers, flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would take this story and help us by your grace to see the great story that you're writing and you're authoring in our lives and in this world. I pray that Jesus would be made much of. I pray that any words that come from, from me would quickly fall to the ground and any words that are from you would be deeply rooted, planted in our hearts so that we might be changed because we've been with you. May you speak to us, Lord, through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Told you. Told you this was a strange story. Uh, kind of story are we looking at this morning? We're looking at a story of, of two women and one man. A story of two women and one man. And my children, uh, most nights, ask me when we're tucking them into bed, Dada, will you tell me a story? And they want mom to read a story or to sing a song. Dad has to tell a story, which means I create a story. I, I make up a story on the spot. Most of them are awful. They're not good, but I try. There is no way that I could make up this morning's story. It feels fantastical, this, this story of two women and one man. And the writer of Judges 4 tells this story very directly. If you picked up on the author's storytelling style, the author leaves out non-essential information. It's very direct. Now, chapter 5 tells the exact same story, but in poetic prose rather than direct narrative. We're going to address that here in a little bit. But chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Judges is the same story. Two women, one man. First woman we see is Deborah. And Deborah, among all of the judges, stands out in this book. She's the only female judge. We know that Deborah is a wife. We don't know much about her husband, but we know she's a wife. Chapter 5 tells us that Deborah is viewed as a mother to Israel. Chapter 4, verse 4, tells us that she's leading Israel. Chapter 4 tells us that she's a prophet, which means she mediates God's presence and God's word to God's people. Deborah is wise. All of Israel comes to her under her own palm tree. She's got a palm tree named after her, Deborah's tree. And people come, and they seek counsel and advice from her. And in chapter 5, as I said, it's a poem. It's a song that she writes about what happens in chapter 4. She's a talented poet. 
Deborah is a singer-songwriter. I mean, she is a remarkable woman. And then we have Jail, this other woman. And she, like Deborah, is resourceful, but Jail lies. She's manipulative. And what Jail does to Sisera, if you picked up one reading, is troubling. I mean, she breaks many of God's commandments. She breaks many of the cultural norms of hospitality. Yet, God still uses Jail in this story of Israel's deliverance and rescue. These are the two women. And then there's this one man, Barak, not the president. That's where my mind, when I hear it, that's where I go. But General Barak of Israel's army, though this Barak also stands by a strong woman in Deborah. And General Barak of Israel is often depicted by many as a weak man. He's timid to go into battle. People reference him asking Deborah, will you, will you come with me into battle to support this claim that, that Barak is weak? I don't think that's what this chapter is saying at all. I think Barak is wise. I think Barak sees a woman that God has blessed, that God is with, and has gifted her and called her, and so he asks her to come with him to fight General Sisera of Jabin's army. Barak, in my opinion, is not a weak man. He's a smart man. So what do we do with this story? Two, two men and one woman. Here's what I want to do with it this morning. I want to try to take this story and it help us learn how to read the Bible. Insights that we can get from this story about the scriptures. And then I want to apply it, insights to our own lives. So we're going to look at the three characters and how God uses all three of them to bring deliverance and rescue and gain insights from the scripture and insight into our own life. So let's start first with jail. So I'm going to kind of work backwards. I'm going to start with jail. In Judges chapter 4, verse 11, it's the first reference we have of jail. It doesn't say her name explicitly. It says the, the wife of, uh, of Lepidoth. But at verse 11, if I was reading it, it, it feels like a speed bump in the story, doesn't it? Like it feels like a detour. Like where is verse 11 coming from? What's it all about? It kind of takes us away from what's going on, but it's really not random. It's not random at all. It's purposeful. The author has it here for, for a reason. Heber, Jael's husband, not Lepidoth. Heber, uh, they're in Heber. He's Lepidoth. Yes, Lepidoth is the husband. They're in Heber. And they're separated from the Kenites. And they pitch a tent as far as the oak in Zananim near Kadesh. That's verse 11. Now, one, uh, one commentator says this is like the equivalent of moving from Florida to Vermont. So, this, so they, they move from Florida to Vermont. It feels like it's random. But then verses 12 through 16 show, this, show us that Barak enters battle with Sisera. Sisera flees in defeat. Verse 17, Sisera then flees to the tent of jail. And because of their move, they just happen to be in the exact location where Sisera flees. They just happen. God's providence leads them there. Now, Sisera thinks he's safe because in verse 17, there's this peace treaty between the two. And, and Sisera th thought he had asylum, right, that there was peace, that he could go there, but jail is dubious. And so she comes to Sisera in the tent. Come on in. Don't be afraid. He asks for a glass of water. And she says, how about a glass of milk? You'll sleep better. She covers him with a blanket, tucks him in, almost acts like a nurturing mother to him. And then verse 21, jail takes the tent peg which is the equivalent of like a household appliance. The women in their day, they were the ones tasked with putting up the tents. And so 
she takes this household appliance, this tent peg, and it goes to him softly and drives the peg into his temple. Not once, but until it goes into the ground. Now, I'm sure one blow would have been enough, but she drives it into the ground, and verse 21 tells us, so he died. Thank you. Thank you, author, for putting that in there. We would never have guessed. But here's what the author is stating. It was a definitive death blow to Israel's enemy. He's dead. So what can we learn about the Bible from jail? What insights can we gain? Here's the thing that I think we can take away. Scripture is often descriptive, not always prescriptive. Scripture is often descriptive, not always prescriptive, especially in narrative accounts. So authors are writing these stories and they're telling what happened, not exactly what God prescribes to happen. Just because we see it happening in the Bible does not mean that God gives us warrant to repeat it today. For example, many people in the Old Testament had multiple wives. The scriptures record this. It describes this. It does not mean that God prescribes polygamy. But God uses jail. Even though she's manipulative, even though she breaks many of God's commands, he uses her. But just because God uses jail to rescue Israel, it does not mean God is prescribing us to use the same tactics as her. We cannot say today that we can lie, that we can manipulate, that we can break God's commands in order to accomplish certain outcomes, even if they are for God. As one commentator said, God uses people without restraining individual responsibility or condoning methods. So what insight can we take for our lives from this? That God is sovereign over every action of every individual. Though they are responsible and acting on their own accord, God may not condone their actions, but he is sovereign over every action and he can use it for his good. Think about Judas, the disciple of Jesus, who turns Jesus over to Pilate for 30 pieces of silver. He acts on his own volition. And of course, God does not condone the selling and the turning over of his only son to be crucified. But through Judas, the cross of Jesus happens, and thus salvation is offered to the world. See, the Bible is full of Judases, people who blow it in big ways. The Bible is full of jails, people who may have ultimately the right motive, but act in ways that are not prescribed by God. And, I, and for that, I'm thankful that there are not perfect people in the Bible because Lord knows I blow it. And it's comforting to see how God uses people who blow it. Here, here's the insight, again, even more so. For you and for me and in our lives, God is in complete control. He is sovereign over everything, things that honor and do not honor him. God can use good and even evil to accomplish his purposes in this world. That is great news for us this morning. Because we live in a world filled with devastation and heartbreak. But we can trust that God is in control that he is at work to accomplish his plans for us and this world. Though we may not see it in the moment and we may never see it, we can trust 
God is at work, and he is sovereign. Well, let's look at Deborah, this remarkable woman, used by God's people to deliver, deliver them, uh, used by God to deliver God's people, and she's a poet. As I referenced earlier, chapter 5 is this song. It's a, it's a different perspective than we, than we get from chapter 4. It, it's this song of deliverance that just kind of wells up in her. And so the insight that I think Deborah gives us into the Scriptures is that there are different genres within the Scripture that God uses to communicate in different ways to his people. Chapter 4 is a narrative account, story account. Chapter 5 is a poem of what happens. Chapter 4 leaves out non-essentials. It's a play-by-play of what happened. And in chapter 4, God's only mentioned four times. But chapter 5 is this song, and it's way more theological. She waxes poetic about the grandeur of God. And in chapter 5, God is mentioned everywhere. Chapter 5 is emotionally charged. And it communicates to us that there's much more going on in chapter 4 than just strict facts. Did you know that the Bible is one-third poetry? One-third of the scripture is poetry. Poetry is powerful. Poetry has the ability to raise us up out of the humdrum monotony of a busy world, to behold beauty and to behold God. I've experienced this. In my second year of seminary, uh, I was having one of the most difficult times in my life. I've shared this before, but I, I felt extremely distant from God. Heart was hard. I was disobedient towards God. I was learning facts about God, propositions about God and the Bible, but my heart was very distant. A seminary professor, Chuck DeGroat, handed me a CD of poems from David White and Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver just passed away a few weeks ago, and God used these two poets to raise my eyes to behold. These two poets, God used to stir my heart in a way that propositions just, just it wasn't working. And at the same time, I started spending mornings in the book of Psalms, God's songbook, God's poetry for us as people. I would sit in a psalm and sit in a sentence or an image or a phrase, and God used these poems to draw me back to himself, to to tender my heart towards him. You see, we need the poetry of the Bible. God knows we need the poetry of the Bible because we're not merely mechanical followers of Jesus. We are primarily worshipers of Jesus who must be captured by the grandeur of God. And we are captured by the grandeur of God, then we will see God in all things, just like Deborah does in chapter 5. Listen to Deborah in chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. It says, The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. From heaven the stars fought. Deborah is singing of how God fought for her. How God delivered Sisera. How God was at work in all things. So Deborah makes us ask the question, are we singing Are we singing, do you see God in all things? If you're too busy, and and oftentimes I am, you will not see. If you're too distracted by smartphones and TV and news, you will miss him. 
We have to be taken out of the humdrum monotony of this world to behold him. And God gives us poetry and art and beauty and nature and stillness to be with him so that we behold him and see his grandeur. And if you miss God in all things, you will say life is boring and you will become bored with God. But we cannot be bored with God if we see God in all things. If we see God in a smile or a tear or a provision or if God gives or takes away. If we see God in a sunrise or in a friendship or in our job or in our family. See, if you're bored, you'll need a new adventure, a new excursion. You'll need to travel abroad to get excited about life. But what we really need is our heart stirred like Deborah so that we see God in all things right here, right now. Are you singing? Let's look at Barak, two women and this one man. As I said earlier, Barak is viewed by many as weak. Uh, some have interpreted Judges 4 to say there was so much passivity among men, so much weakness of male leadership that God had to raise up a woman. No way. God raised up Deborah because God called her and gifted her. I mean, think, think about this. God raised up a woman to lead the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago in a world dominated by men. Here's the insight we get from the Bible with Barak. The Bible is deeply subversive. It's deeply subversive. Both conservatives and liberals have taken this passage to support their case. I've heard it. Conservatives have said there were no men, so God had to raise up women as a last resort. Nope. God uses women and men in his world for his purposes. And I've heard Liberals say, pro-woman, there's no need for men. Women can do everything that a man can do. No, God has gifted men and women equally, but with differing purposes in his world. See, the Bible doesn't lean left nor right. It's not part and partial to any political party. This past week's incident with the Covington school boys and the elder Native American man shows us just how polarized our country is and how quick we are to demonize the opposing side. The Bible can never be a weapon for the left or the right to support their cause. So the Bible will and does affirm some liberal agendas and opposes some liberal agendas. The Bible will and does affirm some conservative agendas and will oppose some conservative agendas. The Bible is subversive. So I pray that we as a church have people that lean left and right and that as we preach the Bible faithfully here, all of you get angry at some point. That God ruffles the feathers of everyone here because the Bible is countering our tendencies to lean towards politics more than faithfulness to the Scriptures. So look with me a little bit at Barak as we gain some insight for our own lives. Verses 6 to 10. We see Barak is courageous. Here he is, 10,000 soldiers. He's about to go into battle against General Sisera. And verse 3 tells us that, he, that Sisera has 900 iron chariots. 10,000 foot soldiers was no match against 900 iron chariots. But in the face of what seemed like sure defeat, Barak steps out in faith to go fight. He's courageous. And he's deeply humble. Because Deborah tells him in verse 9, I will surely go with you nevertheless. The road on which you're going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. 
Deborah the prophet prophesies and tells Barak, you're going to fight Sisera, but a woman's going to kill him. You won't get the glory. And Barak is not a glory seeker. He's humble. He enters the fight. Hebrews 11 tells us in the New Testament that Barak is a hero of the faith, that hall of faith. Barak is listed because he's courageous. He's humble. He's obedient to enter this fight of Israel's rescue. Am I, are you like Barak? Are you willing to obey God's call on your life? Are you willing to step out in faith when you're facing what seems like odds stacked against you? Are you willing to step out in faith when you're scared? Are you walking in humility, not worried about your own glory? Because I know for certain that God is calling all of you to take steps of obedience to him that will not be glorious for you. I know that God is calling every single follower of his to enter the fight of seeing God's kingdom advance over darkness and brokenness in this world. And we enter with courage to see God's kingdom advance as we love our neighbor, as we share our faith about the grace of Christ, as we seek justice and we love mercy, as we're faithful in our callings, in our jobs, or as students, or as parents. We fight, we enter with courage and humility and obedience to God. Now hear me, Sisera's defeat's not about Barak's glory, but it's not about Jael's glory either, even though she's the one who kills him. This whole story about two women and one man is about God's glory. It is about how God wins. Chapter 5 shows us that God sends the weather. He constructs this battle to happen in a geography so that the Iron chariots would get stuck in the mud so that God was taking away the strength of Sisera. And Judges 4.23 tells us on that day, God subdued Jabin. See, God wins. Not Jael, not Deborah, not Barak. The fight of God's kingdom prevailing is not about your or my glory. That is so good for pastors to hear over and over and over who can say we're doing it for God's glory, but it can often become about ours. But it's so good for you to hear it too. Because your grades and your grad school and your children and your job and your finances and your ministry, it's not about your glory. It's about his. This is a crazy story. Two women, one man. Jail, we can't use her tactics. Deborah is intimidating. To even try to emulate, I'll get intimidated by her. But uh, we can't emulate her, but I think we can sing like her. I think we can sing like her. I think we can praise God and ask that God would enable us to be so enthralled with life because we see God at work in all things. And Barack, and I want to be like Barack. I want you to be like Barack, courageous and humble and obedient, fighting, not sitting passively on the sidelines of life, but actively engaging in God's mission to this world. I want to spend the next few minutes sharing some of what God is calling Christ Central to fight for this year and the years to come. Uh, This is Vision Sunday. We'll have our State of the Church this afternoon, which I hope you will come to hear more detail about some of this. But I want to share about how we want to fight for God's glory in this city and beyond. Over the next three to five years, we're praying for three big things. And we're praying for it and we're trying to engage strategically with it. The first is that we want to be a welcoming church that boasts in our imperfections so that those who are seeking questions and about life and answers to questions about life and faith in Jesus, 
may feel welcome to come and participate in our community. And as they participate in our community, that we might see God draw people to himself to trust and to follow him in his church, maybe for the first time. And maybe for some to come back into the church after being gone for a long time. We've been praying this all years. Why we have our missions grants. This money set aside saying, hey, apply for opportunities to engage this way. It's why we encourage this fall hospitality. It's why we preach supper with friends, encouraging you to love your neighbor. It's why we're offering this spring the Alpha and the Foundations course, saying, hey, invite people to come with you into these classes. It's why we call you every Sunday to be on God's mission throughout the week. Because our ability to accomplish this will only come by God through you. Every member on mission, every person together in what God's calling us towards. Second thing, big thing that we want to pray for is that we want to be a church that genuinely embraces and loves across differences. Across race, across class, across generations, across political party and interests. And third, we want to be a church that moves towards and loves the marginalized and oppressed. That we want to seek justice and love mercy as Christ's body in this city. Those are the big things that we're praying for over the next three to five years. Now, there are some specific things that we're praying for to help us accomplish these bigger goals in, in this year and in the, the next one to two years, and let me share a little bit of those with you. The first is staffing. We believe to, to accomplish this, we need to continue to grow and firm up our staff team. We need strong leadership, and we want to create pipelines of leadership development. Uh, so we're hoping to do that uh, in the next year to two years. We want to plant a church or churches in the next two to three years. How and where we do that to be determined. But we planted this church to be a church plant that plants churches. And our plan is to do that. The third thing is that we want to increase our outreach and service ministries. And we want to increase our counseling ministries. The fourth thing is that we want to establish global ministry partners around church planting all over the world, people that are planting churches that share our DNA and our values. And then lastly, we want to shore up long-term stability in our church facilities. We have to. If we want to be in the city for the long haul, we have to plant our roots here. And that may mean we stay at Hayti for the, for the long term, long haul, for the longest time, if the Lord allows that and leads us to do that. It may mean we have to go rent another facility for a long-term agreement, or we might need to purchase. Regardless, we know we want to be in the center of the city for 50 and 100 years, and so we've got to shore that up. Here's the question for us, though. Gave you some vision, how we want to fight, uh, what we want to see happen. How will we sing like Deborah, and how will we fight like Barack as we pray and hope for this vision? Only by keeping the one who is greater than Barak first in our hearts and in our minds. Only by keeping the one who is greater than Barak first in our hearts and in our minds. You see, there was another man who was extremely courageous, who entered battle against forces that seemed too great, a Roman government and Roman soldiers against the forces of darkness itself, a man who was deeply humble who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and set aside his glory and endured the cross so that he could defeat darkness and redeem brokenness. In Jesus, God wins. 
In Jesus, God delivers the death blow to his and our enemies. Judges 4 is a great story. But an even greater story is the meta story of God's rescue and redemption of us and the whole world. So may we sing and may we fight because in Jesus, God wins. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to believe this. Lord, I know we're not always like Barak. And I know we don't always see you in all things, which is why it's so comforting to know that Christ is the one who secures the victory and that we get to be in him and we can trust you. Lord, I thank you that you're with us. Help us as we come to this table to encounter and to behold you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.